Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta. I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. Thank you for listening as together we continue to navigate life during quarantine. Dogs and people have been living together for some 15,000 years. And while domestication means they need us to survive... Dog lovers feel we need them almost as much. Today, we'll learn how a guide dog led a poet to experience joy in living. Joy is something dogs share readily with us, and that's why Matt Hobbs, a musical improv artist, decided to write puppy songs during quarantine. Those songs about dogs have already cheered thousands of folks and dogs on Instagram, as we'll hear a bit later. Songs are the subject of our first segment as well. According to the song Liza Minnelli made famous, life is a cabaret. Life is many things now, and cabaret is not the first thing that comes to mind. But to take us away from the grim reality of the pandemic, Voices of Note invites you to a virtual cabaret. We're joined via Zoom now by Don Milton, the Artistic Director of the Atlanta Gay Men's Chorus. Don, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you so much, Lois. So nice to be with you virtually. What gave you the idea for a couch cabaret? You know, everything's shut down, and we want to be able to connect with our audience. Our board of directors is wonderful, and in their fiduciary responsibilities, their first thought was, well, how can we do concerts that will make money? Uh, we, we typically do two cabarets a year. So this is a fairly normal thing for us. We were supposed to do one this month at Outfront Theater. But they heard very well that right now, people aren't giving a lot to arts organizations. We hope that will change as people learn more about what's going on. But we do want to connect with our people, with our audience, you know, both the Atlanta Gay Men's Chorus and Atlanta Women's Chorus have huge followings here in Atlanta and people who love these ensembles. And how can we have some fun, have a musical project that we put together with each other and give our audience some joy and some beauty uh, in this time? I, I miss hearing people sing, maybe you do too. And it's just a really nice thing to, to put this together. And uh, we have so many talented people. It's an embarrassment of riches is what we have as far as talent in these groups. And so we had people audition and they mailed in, they emailed their videos in. And Dr. Missy Arasi and I went through the videos and chose 14 amazing videos. We don't want it to be too long. I don't think people want to sit in front of their computer for three hours. So we uh, have about a 90-minute cabaret, and it's so fun. Dunlap Productions has helped us put this on. There's a virtual red carpet, which is hilarious. I filmed that last week. But I will be hosting the event live on Thursday night, 
and we'll be playing these videos back and forth while we physically distance but socially come together. Ah, uh, now you mentioned fiduciary responsibilities. Is there a charge to view this concert? There is not. Again, our board has been fantastic. And we said to them, you know, we just want to do this for our audience. And if it does bring in money, cool. If people do give to this event, that's great. But we know that some people are having a lot of hardship right now, especially artists, and we want them to be included in an event like this. We want them to have this joy and this beauty. So we've uh, cleared it as a free event and people can just come join in all the fun. The event showcases both the Atlanta Gay Men's Chorus and the Atlanta Women's Chorus. What were some challenges planning and executing all of the logistics of a digital cabaret show? You mentioned 14 singers. How do you put this all together? Yeah, you know, the audition process was pretty fun. We had folks record themselves from their houses, which sometimes meant dogs barking or doorbells <laughs> ringing or, or whatever. And the the creativity was just out of this world. A lot of folks just are singing beautiful songs or fun songs or funny songs, but some folks just went totally over the top. The first video I watched was the the heart song alone the how do i get you alone uh courtney adcock in the atlanta women's chorus did like a full late 80s early 90s music video that tells the story of her trying to get her partner alone from the dogs in social quarantine and it's so funny and so brilliant uh and we had another another person in the group who arranged the song God Help the Outcasts from The Hunchback of Notre Dame, he did did a full choral arrangement of it with piano part, and he sang all the parts. Oh my. Just did it himself. A.J. Kolink totally nails it. It sounds amazing. And so that creativity is, was really exciting for us. And, uh, you know, eventually we, we chose 14 songs in the end. And some of them we re-recorded. The Dunlop Studios had folks come in well, you know, they, they would record for about 20 minutes in their socially distant studio, and then they'd leave and they'd wait till the air cleared and bring somebody else in. And so we have very high quality video and audio for most things. It's, it's really wonderful. The songs span a wide range of genres and artists, from Alicia Keys and Lady Gaga to Latin, jazz, and even Monty Python. Would you talk about the repertoire and how you went about choosing the numbers that will be performed? Absolutely. You know, sometimes we do these cabarets twice a year, and sometimes we do uh, shows that have a, a through-line story, and sometimes we do themed events, and sometimes we just do an open cabaret. And that's what this one we decided to do. If we continue doing these, we might do some themed ones or try to work a show in. We don't know. But that we just said anything you want to sing. We just opened that door and we received so many submissions and so many cool things. Uh, you know, as we're two gay choruses, so there's a good amount of musical theater on the show, <laughs> uh, which is fabulous, great songs. But people really dove in and found interesting things. I mean, there are songs on here that I didn't know. There are songs on here, you know, rock songs and funny songs and jazz. I mean, the Hokey Carmichael Nearness of You is on there, and that's just a perfect song. And the way we chose, honestly, was Missy and I both listened to everything and just which ones moved us. That's the way. So tell us about some that particularly stand out. Obviously, you love everything that will be performed. We have time for just a few. Yeah, so uh, we have a few recordings here. You know, Matt Harrington sang one of the best gay anthems out there, I Am What I Am from Lacage. <laughs> and uh, Matt has just personality to spare. And so his, as his video, he's just so effusive and marvelous. So we have a little recording of that here. I am what I am. And what I am needs no excuses. 
I deal my own deck Sometimes the ace Sometimes the deuces There's one life And there's no return And no deposit Also, Brittany Cook, member of the Atlanta Women's Chorus, and just one of my favorite voices in the world, hmm. uh, she's singing On My Own, which in quarantine is a little bit funny. Yeah. And, or but not. Also, oh, or not, yeah, but also a perfect song, and she sounds like a million dollars singing it. I love him, but when the night is over, he is gone, the river's just a river. Without him, the world around me changes. The trees are barren everywhere. The streets are full of strangers. Some things we don't have clips of include uh, one of our Atlanta Game Ed's Chorus members, Jim Macknick, wrote his own lyrics to the Beatles hit Yesterday about how yesterday doesn't really matter <laughs> when you're in quarantine. <laughs> <laughs> which is hilarious. Uh, Daniel O'Rourke is singing Always Look on the Bright Side of Life from Monty Python, which is, again, helpful in these times. And Shane Mason is singing Smile, the Charlie Chaplin song Smile. And Shane is a, is a frontline medical worker. And he, like several folks in our ensembles, is every day going in and helping save lives. And he's been so kind and giving us information and keeping us informed and safe. And, you know, that song is a beautiful tearjerker, and he sings it so beautifully. Oh, and I can imagine how much more meaningful, given what he has seen in recent weeks. Absolutely. Can the audience expect to see any special guests? Absolutely, yeah. So, uh, we did some on our red carpet interviews. We have, uh, of course, with Dr. Missy Arasi from the Atlanta Women's Chorus, uh, from our board vice chair, Nathaniel Hodges, and uh, uh, some special drag queens who come on. But also uh, George Estevez from WSB-TV jumped on and did an interview with me. George has been a, is new to Atlanta, but was a big supporter of the Orlando Gay Men's Chorus. And so he and I talk about that. And... It's an exciting time, and we may have a member of the, the cast of Dear Evan Hansen jumping on to, to help us ring in the event and also to announce the song For Forever, which four of our members sang together from Dear Evan Hansen. Ooh. Don, are audience members encouraged to participate? Is there an interactive component to the Couch Cabaret? Yeah, so... Uh, we're going to be streaming this on Facebook Live, but also on Vimeo. And we will have people there in the chats because, you know, we have found at, my, at the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Atlanta, where I'm the music director, that interacting in the chat while watching things is actually a really enjoyable experience. Some people think of it as distracting, then you just go to full screen and pretend it's not there. But if it's there, uh, it, you know, talking about the things you like and, and, and seeing other people virtually interacting feels really good. You know, these group activities are so missed and we want to get together and experience things together. So it's a lovely way to do it. It is, Don Milton, thanks to you and Melissa Rossi for all you are doing to sweeten some very bitter moments. I thank you. Great to hear you, Lois, and great to be with you virtually. Don Milton. Artistic Director for the Atlanta Gay Men's Chorus. For more information on their event, Couch Cabaret with the Atlanta Women's Chorus, check out our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. 
That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Scientific research shows that when our dogs stare into our eyes, they activate the same hormonal response that bonds us to human infants. That hormone is oxytocin, which plays a role in maternal bonding, trust, and altruism. Dogs seem to understand us in a way that no other animal does. So it's no wonder that during quarantine, many of us feel closer than ever to our dogs. Matt Hobbs is celebrating that special connection with his dual talent as a comedy improviser and musician. His project is called Puppy Songs, and he joins us now via Zoom. Matt, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much, Lois. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Please tell us about your background as a musical improviser. This is a specialty within a specialty. Yeah, it's been a wild ride and a lot of fun. I... When I moved to Atlanta in 2010, almost 10 years ago, at the end of the month, one of the first things I ever did that was cool thing to do in town was go see shows at dad's garage. Uh, I was, I was fascinated with it. I loved watching the improv shows, but as a musician, I was especially interested in the piano player on the side of the stage who was making up the score making up the uh the songs with the improvisers that they were singing songs and i was like i've got to find a way to do that and so after a couple years of uh of seeing the shows i auditioned and worked my way in in 2012 and for the last eight years i have been uh making up songs every weekend at dad's garage over there on the side of the stage at the piano uh, as well as doing music direction and composing for some of the scripted shows that dad's has put on and it has been the most fun gig as a musician ever and something wholly unexpected until I, until I found it. Oh, well, dads bring so much joy to so many people. How did you come up with the idea to write puppy songs? It's funny because there's two natural resources that exist in our household uh, with my fiance and I and Lenny and Marley, our two dogs. And the two natural resources, one is... I constantly walk around and sing songs to the dogs, just little silly things about eating breakfast or whatever the moment may be. And then the other natural resource was videos of dogs on my phone, constantly like, oh, Lenny's doing something cute, let me film that, or Marley's doing something silly, let's film that. And so I, uh, I was getting to the point where I wanted a new project to write short songs and produce different styles of songs. And I was like, well, let's just make the dogs <laughs> put on little sketches and little scenes and make a musical uh, and just combining some of the stuff I had lying around and uh, and the songs that people make up for their dogs and and comments have come through in a lot of the videos where I think a lot of people sing to their dogs musicians and uh, non-musicians and everyone alike well so yeah and and read to them and and discuss our most intimate thoughts with them and ask their advice <laughs> Um, the list goes on. You wrote a song about my dog, Rex, which I, I will forever cherish, and you captured his essence in such a short time. Is, is there a, a time frame? I mean, how long does it take you to write a song? Inspiration doesn't always strike immediately. It's true. Uh, sometimes it takes a couple sittings to figure out what the story is going to be. In the case of Rex, 
it was it was faster because of the brilliant title that I was gifted in the in the Golden Observer. <laughs> There's a great story there, and and how that fit so well with the handful of videos that y'all were kind enough to send over. It just it was already a very cohesive story. So then the challenge was how do we just make it catchy, uplifting, and and entertaining uh, for for someone to get the get the Rex feel. Uh, and that was that was the challenge. Normally, they take anywhere from five to eight hours, actually, to make one. I was excited about this one because the story was so clear from the beginning. I just I wanted to see I wanted to see the finished product. But they do take they do take some time. Some of them it's it's like any other creative process. Sit down two hours and the water just runs brown the whole time, and you leave with nothing. Sometimes you leave with a good hunk of a concept, and that gets you excited to come back. Oh well, it, it, your lyrics your music it, it's all so very clever and with rex i should um explain what you're referring to the golden observer is the fact that it, despite being 100 percent retriever rex will not retrieve anything has never retrieved anything has human retrievers and i guess that's that's what you seized upon he is so intensely involved with humans though that i guess he figures meh why bother chasing a ball when you know you can be discussing deep meaningful things like <laughs> mel brooks movies or ace ventura pet detective <laughs> important stuff. Matt, you have acquired quite a following. I mean, I should say you've amassed quite a following with puppy songs. And this has only been in the past two months. Is that correct? We had, yeah, we, we've, it's been wild. We had a running start um, when the, when the quarantine hit. We'd maybe done eight or nine songs sporadically, and it was a kind of a back project for me, uh, something to do if nothing was going on. But once the quarantine hit, I started uh, started really, really working on it more because it didn't have a lot of options, didn't have a lot else going on with all the live shows and the festivals and everything that would have been going on in the spring. So I've I put a lot into making songs and just doing social media to the point where we're making connections. A lot of people in the Instagram dog community, there's lots of famous dogs doing very fun stuff on Instagram as I've come to find out. And so just building relationships with those folks and, and trying to make, make songs that, uh, that I felt like interested me and, and did the pup justice. But pretty quickly it got, it got bigger than just me making songs with, some of the comments people started commenting saying like one this is i'm reading one here this is the content we need right now you know this makes my tuesdays better during this stressful time you should see my second graders face when i walk in and say it's tuesday because that's puppy songs day i mean it got to the point where i was like i can't i can't mess this up for these people like this has become something that it's a welcome distraction for me because when i spend time writing songs and editing videos about dogs it makes me smile it makes me happy and gives me a little bit of an escape and learning that it was that it was something that i could do from lockdown from my little corner of the universe that had any kind of impact on other people that's when i just i was like let's do this let's let's go let's make some puppy songs and let's see what happens and so it's been a it's been a lot of fun and it has grown a lot. We've been very, very fortunate to have people who want to share the stories. And I, I'm just still blown away by it. I'm still absolutely blown away by it. How many followers do you have on Instagram? Right now we have just under 6,000. Wow. You are bringing a whole lot of happiness to so many people. Now, are folks commissioning you? to write songs about their dogs or as a gift for someone else? Uh, I have had a lot of requests. I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out how to handle that for now, because like I said, the songs take, the songs take a good amount of time. And so I don't think there will ever be a point where I can do more than two or three in a given week, just based on the time commitment. But right now I'm actually doing a giveaway once a month for people who follow 
and we gave one away to a corgi, a corgi one, a corgi from Portland, Oregon one a couple weeks ago, and we released that song this past Friday. It was a corgi named Eggs, and so they, <laughs> so, so they got a song, and that was fun because uh, it was our first corgi, and so I went all in on the on the royalty aspect of it. It was a Pembroke Welsh corgi, and so I did kind of a, a, a regal uh, sound palette, and and lots of egg was too much fun. That is fantastic. Now, do you think we might hear that on the next series of The Crown when it premieres <laughs> on Netflix? I hope so. I, oh, that would be great. Yeah, because the Queen's Corgis are prominent in that series. I read that you are currently writing a musical for Dad's Garage. Can you tell us about it, or is that secret? <laughs> No, I'll be happy to share what, what I uh, what I know. It's it's been a lot of fun. I'm teaming up with Travis Sharp, who is a veteran musical playwright and ensemble member, and so many great things at Dad's. And so he and I have been working together to develop and write a show that we've been working on for a couple years. And the idea came one day after a show. I was talking to Kevin Gulise, uh, former artistic director. And he said, Matt, you need to do, you need to pitch a show that only, only you could do. And I said, well, what does that mean? And so the two things I love more than anything are, uh, one is I grew up in New Orleans. So I love New Orleans. I love New Orleans culture. Um, I love the music. I grew up eating and singing and uh, with a big Italian family in New Orleans. And so that's still a big part of my, my life, even though I'm here. And uh, the other big thing is I love Agatha Christie period murder mysteries as well as Dorothy Sayers and Anthony Horowitz and a whole number of people who are kind of flowing in and out of there, watching Father Brown and, and oh, love yes. that genre. Oh, I watch a ridiculous amount of British crime drama. It's so fun. And so what I was tasked in trying to figure out is how can we make a murder mystery musical that takes place in New Orleans on a riverboat? And so that's, that's what we're writing. It's crazy. It's continuing to evolve. We've rewritten it umpteen times and are still doing so and working with John Carr, the artistic director at Dad's. We don't know when it's going to go up uh, in light of everything that's going on, but we're, we're still really, really excited about it. And a murder mystery musical that takes place in New Orleans. It's a farce. It's very silly. And uh, it, the theme is family. Uh, the theme is, is it's all about family and how New Orleans, for many folks, is, a, is like one big dysfunctional family where there's lots of different, different things all together, but somehow it just works in spite of its flaws or in spite of its good times and bad times. People show up. And so... Yeah, the proverbial gumbo. Exactly. And you may have just said the working title. It, I think that's what we're leaning toward is, is gumbo, a period farce murder mystery musical. Oh, it sounds brilliant. And New Orleans, how lucky you are. New Orleans is the most musical city in America. I love New Orleans and I think you have so much rich background there to draw from. Do you think that you will continue writing puppy songs after quarantine in the so-called newer normal? I think so. I, I think it's something I enjoy, and that's something that is a huge part of it. Uh, and it's something that I think people are enjoying it, and I'm enjoying it. So I don't see any reason why why I would stop, even when things open up. It's funny because I've I've written music and played music and done this for for ten years or in Atlanta and this is the thing that gets the biggest audience is the dogs, but I'm very grateful for it. I'm very very grateful for it, and I I will gladly be known as the puppy songs guy for whatever reason and and try to keep telling these fun dog stories that that brighten people's day. It's the same reason why I love making music and playing at dads is that it's something people look forward to. It's something positive. It's something that we can use music to tell stories and hopefully create a positive impact on people. And that's a gift that I hope to hold on to for as much as I can. So hopefully more and more puppy songs. Matt Hobbs, musical improviser with Dad's Garage Improv Theater. You can see his puppy song videos on Instagram or on puppysongs.com. Matt was kind enough to write a song for my dog, Rex. 
weeks, a 12-year-old golden who never retrieved anything. Not interested. He has human retrievers, thank you. So we call him a golden observer. Here's a preview of Matt Hobbs' song. The Golden Observer The Golden Observer He and his mom sit and listen to Brahms And devour biographies with fervor He'd rather stay indoors and wear his bandana Than go swimming in a life preserver You can see the video with the song on our Facebook page at City Lights with Lois Reitzes or on our Instagram at Lois Reitzes. The poet Stephen Kuisisto was born legally blind and told by his parents to pass as sighted from a very early age. He hid his blindness as best he could until his mid-thirties when he was fired from his teaching job and forced to navigate a new world. In his memoir, Have Dog Will Travel, A Poet's Journey. Stephen Cursisto chronicles his road from despair to self-acceptance and the transformative experience of having a canine companion. From our 2018 conversation, here's Stephen Cursisto first describing the early encounters with his guide dog, Corky. It's funny because I think I say in the book that I went to get a guide dog believing that they would hand me this well-trained animal and that all I had to do was then leave, you know, like buying a car and just going off the lot. And instead, they paired me with this brilliant dog who was infinitely wiser than any dog I had ever met. And... They asked me to spend a couple of days with her before we even began the guide dog stuff, and I realized that she was delightful, playful, curious, silly, (laughs) uh, you know, but in wonderfully intelligent ways, right? And I thought, oh, man, I'm in the company of a really interesting uh, animal here. Yeah, you wrote that she had the most comprehending face you'd ever met. It's true. And, you know, I also made a joke. I said she looked me over like a tailor, you know, (laughs) measuring me, you know. I mean, uh, this was something I was, you know, I'd grown up with wonderful dogs. We had beautiful golden retrievers. They were really sweet animals. But this was a whole different kettle of fish. Yeah. None of the adults in your life accepted disability. What impact did that have on you with your minimal eyesight as a child? It taught me to live always in a state of guilt and shame, that I should be normal, and of course no one can achieve that if they have a real disability, that therefore I was always wrong. I was wrong uh, on the playground, wrong in the ordinary classroom where I didn't get the kind of you know accommodations or help that today we would imagine would be uh, available to a disabled school kid. Uh, I was generally wrong uh, as I endeavored to try to do the things that non-disabled kids did routinely because that's what my mother was encouraging me to do. So when you grow up in that dynamic, and I think people who are gay or transsexual or what have you also know this, your every moment is very precarious and you build a small provincial world inside yourself. And it's not a healthy way to live. No. How were you able to choreograph your life? I lived in small places. <laughs> <laughs> and memorized steps? I, I did. I lived in small places, and I knew the terrain. And that's how everything sort of worked. 
And so the you know the the sort of incitement of this book is that I uh, kind of arrive at this moment when I'm in my mid thirties and I suddenly don't have a job and I realize that if I'm going to make my way in the world, I need to actually go places, and that I actually don't know how to do this. And so that's sort of the you know the Dante esque moment, being in the dark wood, having to find a new path. I decide that I need to learn how to travel successfully as a blind person, and that leads me to this amazing dog. And to to call guiding eyes. What was the defining moment that got you to call guiding eyes? Uh, well, I'd learned how to successfully use a white cane, and I was doing it, and I was walking around downtown Ithaca, New York, a college town where I then lived, and... I stepped out into the street and did not hear, because of wind conditions, a station wagon that was running the red light, and I was almost uh, run over by the station wagon. A stranger kind of yanked at my clothing, and this car missed me by inches, and I sat on the sidewalk and tasted my heart, and Hmm. then I thought, you know, dogs are trained to prevent you from doing that. I like dogs. (laughs) You know, it was like that light bulb moment where Elmer Fudd suddenly has a thought, right? It's just like, ding! Oh, you know, I could do that. You write that suddenly ironies were everywhere after you called Guiding Eyes, that the man who came to see you was named David C. for one. Right, right, right. What were some of the other ironies? The sweetest irony of all and we're all lucky if we get there, right, is what we call in, in English departments comic irony, right, where you are able to look at yourself but from a little bit of distance as though you're a character in a play and you're in the audience watching yourself, right? And that's an aesthetic pleasure, right? You look at that character on the stage and you mm-hmm. think things like, don't do it, don't do it, oh, God, <laughs> you did it, or, you know, I wouldn't do a thing like that, right? And When you achieve it as a form of emotional intelligence where you can look at yourself from a bit of a distance, right, then you're able to have um, an interesting kind of appreciation for both the good and the less good things about your personality, your temperament, your behavior, your acquired habits. And so training with a guide dog sequentially showed me day by day lots of little things that I had largely been ignoring in my life, including the fact that I wasn't very brave about going new places, that I didn't have much of a sense of trust. I didn't trust other people. I uh, didn't trust uh, the world to receive me, to accept me. And training with a guide dog was really breaking down those barriers very quickly. What did you learn from just articulating good Dog. You write about uh, vocal sorrow versus spoken good. Mm, yeah, I, you know, that was one of those ironic moments where I realized as the guide dog trainers are teaching us, all of us 12 students who are getting a dog, that the dogs work because of praise and that they need to be praised all the time. Nowadays, by the way, they also urge you to give the dog a little treat every now and then. But back then, treats were forbidden. But praise was a big deal, right? And so, you know, your dog stops for a curb as it's supposed to. You say, good dog, good dog, and that you're supposed to do this all the time, all day. And pretty soon I'm realizing, wow, you know, not only does that feel good for the dog, but it feels good for me, (laughs) which led me to the ironic uh, understanding that nobody had ever taught me anything about praise. Who learns about praise, right? They don't – I don't know. Maybe they do it now, but, I mean, I was taught to – compete against other people in classrooms and, uh, you know, mostly just kind of get ahead by stealth and and uh, persistence. And my mother wasn't a very praising sort of person. So praise, right? What a concept. Really? You wrote in your journal, dog life will be communicative, fully understanding, and never with the proper words. But words are a cherished commodity for a poet. Was this a source of frustration or disappointment when you said never with the proper words? I have three quick thoughts about that. One is that there's a difference between being awakened and feeling fully empowered 
as the poet Pablo Neruda would say, right? uh-huh. where you really are dynamically alive within yourself and you feel your best creative and emotional powers. And being a person who is just simply trying to mime the language of acceptance that you believe other people want to hear. And that distance is really a great one. And with Corky, I crossed that distance. And that's part of the reason I wanted to write this book, that you know, we love books about writing, those of us who love literature, and we love the idea that poets can write about how they developed and grew. And I really began to feel that Corky was my best creative writing teacher, right? That by, in, in other words, sending me into or, or giving me the idea that I could go anywhere I wanted to and that I could do it with confidence, that led me to then go places and do things that I wouldn't have been able to do in the past, which, of course, can't but help to improve your writing and strengthen your you know, imagination. I was hoping you would read the paragraph that begins... And the caresses of the subway dark. Oh, right. Yeah. So I say here, by day two in Manhattan, uh, I saw George Eliot was incorrect. Eliot had said that, that we long for an affection, ignorant of our faults, and dogs give us this, right? And I said, by day two in Manhattan, I saw George Eliot was incorrect. Corky wasn't ignorant of my faults at all. Working through the tangled places, she surmised my confusions. Stopping before a flight of subway steps, she looked up at my face, wanting to be certain I'd found my location and that my footing was secure. And the caresses of the subway dark, a softness like twilight under the city. The anteroom of hell with its stink of burnt rubber and urine and the collected odor of ten million human fears. And we were forging ahead through the damasked air. And I don't know how to convey it, but in the rhythms of the trains and our own courage, uh, we're, and the rhythms of the trains and our own courage were tightly bound. Who the hell is happy in the subway? I swear we were. I will think of that every time I ride the subway. It's just gorgeous. Would you read the actual poem you wrote for Corky Running to the Wood? So this is a little poem I wrote to Corky. I wrote several, actually, but this is a little poem I wrote while I was at the famous McDowell Colony, and I'm in a cabin in the woods, and I'm thinking about I'm thinking about the human soul, and I'm thinking about loneliness and separation and a lot of different things, and I'm being kind of philosophical. And Corky is sitting by the door looking out at the trees, and uh, and I write this little poem. It, it's just a meditation, really. It's called Running to the Wood. My dog, trained for the blind, sees Rorschach's of wings. Vows of light, tongueless stones, call her to the door. All gods are avatars of wit. They dance a bone dance down the centuries of June. Dispensed by mists, I'm lonely too. The Roman gravity of our lives is inconsolable. So, yeah, that's a poem about um, that life is mysterious and uh, in our meditative moments we can be melancholy and that this stretches back before the beginnings of time. Hmm. And I thought of the dog as also being in that moment a little bit, you know. Um, it's tempting always to think, uh, well, in the, it's certainly in disability circles, we talk about overcoming narratives all the time, right? That there's a, t- a popular kind of story where a disabled person gets a dog and suddenly they're really happy and everything is wonderful. And it's true that getting a service animal is a terrific thing, but life is still life and it's complex and strange. And uh, you have a moment in the afternoon where the dog is looking wistfully at the trees and you're looking wistfully at the dog looking at the trees and you're thinking, what a strange, ancient, uh, impossible world we're in. (laughs) (laughs) Well, eventually... You came to work for the guide dog school. How was that different from teaching courses in college? 
Uh, it was wildly different than teaching courses in college because uh, I was really working month by month with groups of people who were coming to train with a guide dog, had come to the school, were taking the same leap of faith that I had taken uh, when I got Corky. And just as with every other arbitrary, uh, you know, human slice of life, if you took 12 cab drivers, you know, 12 homemakers, 12, 12 sailors and put them all together in a room. They'd all be different. All those blind people were different every month. The blind aren't the same, right? Nor should they be. And so, you know, in a classroom, you're doing most of the talking. You ask students to, you know, relate to you what they've been reading and thinking. But, you know, you don't really get to know those students really, really well. And in a month-long a guide dog class where people are every day taking on new, uh, you know, challenges and turning corners very rapidly, both spiritually and physically, and you have dinner with them or coffee and you sit around and talk, you learn a lot about people. Uh, and that was um, really profound for me. Um, you describe talking about dogs as part of your work. As an evangelical thing, you mean you weren't evangelizing with poetry in college classes? <laughs> How is it different? I, well, I got to laugh, you know, because anybody listening to the show knows that poets love to talk about poetry and all poets think that poetry makes people better. Of course. And, you know, and we do, right? Uh when I was younger, I had the privilege of knowing Robert Bly quite well. Oh. And, uh, you know, he was always, you know, wonderfully talking about how poetry, poetry will make you a better person. <laughs> and uh, so we all believe that, uh, you know, that's the evangelism of the, of the creative writing uh, world. But there is something about dogs that if you're alert and open to them and you're thinking about them with care, um, you realize that they like us no matter what. Pet owners know this, but yes. service dog owners really figure this out. And that's a different thing. You don't need approval because you wrote the right poem. One of the best guide dog trainers I knew, he's passed away now. His name is Ted Zabricki. The book is dedicated to him. He used to say to blind people all the time, be good to yourselves. You deserve it. And, uh, I, and I always thought, yeah, Ted's just channeling what the dogs think. Oh, they are noble creatures. Yeah, they are. Would you tell us about the love story written by two Labradors? So that's a comic moment in the book, right? I returned to work at the guide dog school, and I've got Corky. I've had her about two years at this point. And uh, I have an office on the main floor of the guide dog school, and Corky takes off one afternoon while I'm talking on the phone, just quietly, right, just stealthily wanders off. And so I go looking for her, you know, and somebody says, oh, she wandered upstairs. <laughs> and and uh, so I go upstairs, and there's this big black Labrador bouncing up and down, and Corky's bouncing up and down, and the two of them are having just this fabulous, hey, 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 hey. And, you know, they're just engaging in this just ecstatic canine way. <laughs> and the black lab was named Roscoe. He had failed out of the guide dog school Aww. because he was too sensitive. And, uh, you know, his owner turned out to be a former guide dog trainer and the woman who ran the admissions program. And Corky and Roscoe became uh, best buddies, and Connie and I fell in love. And so we got married, and uh, I really honestly think that it was a dog date, right? Corky and uh, Roscoe brought us together. So that becomes part of the book. Oh, I loved it. it this memoir is a testimonial for guide dogs, but why is it an act? inaccurate, as you say, to surmise that guide dogs heal people? Well, because disability never goes away. Um, you know, one of the things that, that we often talk about in disability studies circles is that disability is really essentially a lifelong circumstance. And so you need to, as we say in general discussion, right, you need to embrace that disability um, you need to 
understand that it's a significant part of who you are. In my case, and in the cases of many people with disabilities that I know, that you know, you become, you even become a little affectionate toward it. You know, it's a it's a thing. On the other hand, um, a service dog can make you feel all kinds of good things, um, but it it doesn't change the fact that you're still disabled, right? And so, at various points in the book, I describe despite the fact that I'm having a grand old time and a wonderful moment, you know, you run into an ugly cab driver who doesn't want to take you because of the dog, even though it's illegal or, you know, you have some kind of a strange, you know, social circumstance where you know, some weird person walks up to you, un, you know, uninvited and says oddball things. Women who are pregnant know all about this, right? Ah, you know, yes. You know, can I touch you? You know, I mean, these, these things happen. So, uh I've just tried to be thoughtful about how, you know, it guide dog is a wonderful thing, but, you know, it's also not one of those uh, things that, you know, oh, and then we lived happily ever after, right? You know, we lived better. We lived with more dignity and joy, but there are still oddnesses, right? And and disability is still, you know, a dynamic in your life, right? So I, that's what I was trying to get at. There are many thoughts beautifully expressed in this book. One that took my breath away was your writing of Corky. Our companionship was intimate and richer than poems. Yeah. Stephen Cusisto, thank you for taking us on the poet's journey. Have oh, thank you for having me. This was a delight. Poet Stephen Cursisto is the author of Have Dog, Will Travel, A Poet's Journey. You've been listening to City Lights, a celebration of the arts and the ways in which we express ourselves creatively. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m., to hear about a new children's book on COVID-19. Children learn how they're helping to fight the disease by staying home. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at... L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. City Lights is now a podcast, too. Check it out wherever you download your podcasts. Thanks for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.